is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and our guest today is one of the few child stars who actually grew up and made a success of himself. He's an actor, a stand-up comic, a radio host, a professional wrestler, and the only one of our guests who's both a black belt and an ordained minister. (laughs) Welcome Danny Partridge himself, Danny Bonaducci. Wow, well, thank you, Gilbert. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. Welcome, Danny. It's a pleasure. I remember uh, being on your radio show in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, you were uh, fantastic. I mean, Gilbert has, uh, um, I guess most people know this, when you have a celebrity, it's kind of one thing on the radio, but when you have a celebrity, everybody goes, the second you open your mouth, oh, Gilbert Godfrey, that guy that did this and then that and then this, that's a home run every time. Yeah, and, and I remember we, we hung out afterwards and had a wild time. And <laughs> Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> Care to talk about it? You know, I, I, I am, I'm sitting right here next to my wife, but yes, yes, I would. If you're going to dare me, I'm going okay, to take up I'll the Okay, I'll dare you. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. You just. Right, uh, I, <laughs> you know what? I don't remember it being that incredibly weird of a night, but I'm a weirder cat than most people. I remember we went out, somehow hooked up with this girl I know, and, and one or more of us may have had sex with her. Yes. And, and I remember, and this is why I feel I have a real connection with you, because in the alleyway. <laughs> You know, when a story starts off in the alley... I mean, when that's that's the beginning, when that's the (laughs) mild part. (laughs) It was a a wild night out there. By the way, I I have mentioned that to people once or twice a year, every year since. You want to hear something weird? So me and Gilbert Gunn are in an alley. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's one uh, that warms up the troops. I I remember... (laughs) She she <laughs> bent over it in the alleyway, and you inserted yourself. And then, wow, was that in the alley? I thought that was in somebody's no, house. No, that was in the alley when it first wow. started. Yes, and then she started to blow me, and I was having. <laughs> and my erection was kind of. A semi-erection, because I kept looking at you. <laughs> right, I was right there only a torso away. Yeah, so when, when, you, when you're standing there trying to get a blowjob and looking at Danny Partridge, <laughs> it, it's really hard to keep hey, well, an erection. Can election. I just say this? I got a boner right off the bat looking at Iago. <laughs> And then I remember <laughs> uh, I had a hotel room. Right. So we both went up there, and you went first. Oh, and wow. Look I, at me go. Yeah. <laughs> you are my opening act. 
What a great way to put that. So to speak. I remember I was doing one of those stupid uh, celebrity moments that I used to do, and one was celebrity boxing. And I'm doing the celebrity yeah, yes. boxing stuff. Yeah. And do you know who Jose Canseco is? Of course. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. like the biggest motherfucker in the world. <laughs> and I'm standing in the ring because he was being of a bit of a bitch and wouldn't make his entrance on time. So I'm standing in the ring, and I'm five foot six and a half, by the way. And so Jose Canseco comes in six foot six, I believe. You can check the stats on this guy. Comes in over the top rope, and I hear a ding, and my hands go up, and I think, hey, this is my, one of those things you just don't see every day. And didn't he outweigh you by about 100 pounds, Dan? About 100 pounds on the nose. I weighed 165, he weighed 265. It's kind of a draw, that one, wasn't it? <laughs> that was one of the... I mean, I, I'm lucky to be alive, and I survived it, and you look back on that stuff, and it seems kind of funny. But, that, you know what? I've been through a lot. I was in a high-speed police chase once, and I was more afraid <laughs> boxing Jose Canseco. <laughs> and I remember, too, when we were in the alleyway uh, yeah. with our pants uh, zipped up, um, there was this one, you know sleazy looking guy who walked by who was staring at us and you turned around and yeah i mean he was a big guy and you go what what what's your problem and you said like you don't give a shit no that's one of my problems i often don't give a shit Boy, it's going to be hard to talk about Danny Partridge after this. Yeah, in, in yeah. the same way. Even I don't look at myself the same way. Now, here's a story I'm sure you're tired of talking about, but I'd be remiss in not bringing it up, and that's when you beat up a transvestite. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm not tired of talking about that. Oh, okay. I love talking about that. You know, it's funny that you say this, Gilbert. When I just referenced the high-speed police chase that I was in, it's because of that story. It is? Yes, oh, all start, the same. Start from the beginning, Danny. All right, all right. So I will start from the beginning. I go out, and this I have, This is going to be a long story if you want it all, but I go out to get a pack of cigarettes. And the reason I know I'm only 880 feet from my house is because we had to measure it for court. Like, lawyers were asking, how far are you in? Uh, so anyway, I go out to get cigarettes. There's a girl standing on the corner, and she doesn't look like she's, she looks like she's up to no good. And I said, <laughs> I, I, I don't really remember what I said. Hi. Anyway, she ends up in my car. $40 is exchanged. I pull forward because I don't want to be in the 7-Eleven parking lot. I pull forward and I look at this girl and I think, hmm, <laughs> what's not right? I don't know what it is. Oh, I know. You're a guy. So I say, you know, I've been through a lot, Gilbert, so I stay pretty calm. And I just say, hey, man, there's, there's been a mistake. No harm, no foul. Uh, but give me that $40 back. And I say, he, say, he says, no. And I said, what, what do you know? And he says, you took me off my corner. And I didn't know the rules, so I go, fuck you, man. Give me my 40 bucks back. And uh, he won't. And now this gets to be the most expensive 40 bucks. I just should have said, okay, keep it. Get the fuck out, whatever. But I didn't. I, I, you know, I took real umbrage with this guy keeping my $40. So it goes back and forth. I go, hey, man, uh, that's my 40 bucks. Give me my 40 bucks and get out of my car. And he, he, he won't do it. So finally, I get up 
and I go around to his side of the car because, like, we're dating now. And I open his door, and I go, get out. And he won't, so I grab him, and I pull him out of the car, and he's really fucking big. And like I said, I'm five foot six and a half. Almost everybody's bigger than me. But this guy, maybe six feet, but 200, 210 pounds. There's a lot of girl guy here. So I thought, you know what? This guy sells his butt every night of the week in Phoenix, Arizona. I'll bet he's had some harm times. I'm not going to sit here and discuss this with him. Uh, I just say, I'm going to get killed here. So I punch him in the head as hard as I can possibly fucking go. He falls down, and he starts to immediately get up, and I'm screaming. And this is just so bizarre. I'm screaming, don't get up. I'm little. I'm a little guy. Don't get up right now. And he starts to get up, and I hit him again. It's all horrible. And the cops pull up. And now the cops are there. There's a transvestite hooker on his ass in the street. It's just the most fucked night ever. And uh, I'm talking to these cops, and I think, what do I do? And I, it occurs to me, I really, as far as I can tell, and I'm being dead serious here, I haven't done any goddamn thing. There was a, you know, uh, a discussion over money and fees paid and whatever it was. But you, know, you wouldn't get him. Like, I hit him. It's no big deal. I'm, I have no problems here. I looked at the cops, and they immediately, I could tell, I could tell right away. They fucking hate me. So I jumped back into my car, and I hit the gas. And this is, this is a terrible thing. Whenever you hear a guy took a, decided to run from the cops, just kind of tell them no. You're never going to get away. It's a shitty fucking idea every time. So I will tell you, we're talking about the weirdest things that happen in your life. When I can actually remember, I'm in the car running, and the radio news comes on and says, that there's a high-speed chase. I think I'm listening to the high-speed chase I'm in, in the car I'm driving. That's fucking weird. I beat them to my house by about 10 seconds. I run upstairs, and I go to my bedroom, I'm laying down on the ground, and I, I strip off all my clothes. I think mean, they're not going you know, to beat up a guy that's naked on the floor. There's, I, there's some reason to this. And I, they kick in my door, they get in my house. I don't really remember how. But I go, oh, they're, they're going to they're gonna kill me. I can't hide here. So I get up and I get in the closet and I, I pull all these dirty clothes over my head and the cops come in and they're looking around with their flashlights and they're mustering up stuff with their, flat, with their batons and they go to leave and I think, I'm going to get the fuck away with this. Unbelievable. And they look back around and I don't know if some of the clothes are missing, but there's like the hair is coming out of a zipper. I don't know what it was, but... That was that was it. They had me. They hooked, like we criminals like to say hooked and booked, and I was off to the police station. So I could I could see you feel very uncomfortable talking about. It's <laughs> funny because not more people would be way more uncomfortable bringing it up. I love talking. That's a fucking fail fail safe story. Who's got a better story than that? That's mine. <laughs> I just I need somebody to have the balls like you to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> now there was another time you you were when um I I know you you're very secretive about your drug problem. Right. Yes. <laughs> so you and a friend, I remember in your book you were sitting in a car in the worst section of town and these two guys robbed you. Oh, yeah, this is, I thought you were, we were talking, we were back in Chicago. This was in Los Angeles. I was just talking about this story to somebody. Um, we pulled up to this terrible uh, part of town. Now, I knew a guy, uh, you're talking about my book now, I know a guy down there, his name is Ghost, who later on in this story gets fucking shot. But 
by by the time I know him, I'm getting I'm getting robbed in all these different wrong streets in this one neighborhood. Because that's the thing with drug dealers; they're just as honest. <laughs> and we um, I go there with my buddy Dave, and uh, this guy starts acting a little bit rough with me, and he gives me what one guy gives me what I believe to be crack, and I'm trying to get away because another guy grabs it, and this guy this guy starts biting me. Really hard, and I go, Dave, Dave, we have to get out of here. And he's just super calm. He goes, Hey, hang on, man, I'm being robbed over here. And somebody's got his gold chain pulled really tight and a razor blade at his neck. So we all just kind of surrendered. Here's the crack from my hand. I don't know what you want from Dave. And then we finally found ghosts who would sell those every time until somebody shot him. And then I heard they. Uh, busted the tires in the car you were in. You know what? That's right. That, that is exactly right. And I don't know why. What were we going to give twice, uh, Chase to a couple of little white guys in crack neighborhoods? <laughs> Hold it right there. But yeah, yeah, they punctured, they punctured all four of the tires. I forgot about that. And, and another time, you were going to buy uh, drugs from your pusher, and you were like a block away, and then somebody walked up to your pusher first. Do you remember this? No, somebody walked up. And somebody walked up and shot your pusher. Right, no, that's, that's Ghost. That's the guy, he's one street over. Come on, Gilbert. He's one street over from where I got robbed. If he just made it to, to Ghost, I actually saw him. Uh, you know, in, in uh, it's a crazy world, and the stuff we've kind of done. See the real live guy whose no, name you know get shot right there on the corner. That was really, really weird. And here's a kind of a sad note on. Well, drugs are just bad. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> but I, I, I ran away because well, they just killed Ghost Man. We got to get out of here. And that was my friend and all that. And I was back in that neighborhood within 15 to 20 minutes buying crack off the guy who shot him. Wow. Oh, yeah. Man. Talk about a bummer, huh? <laughs> and you were you were living with like some Asian hooker. <laughs> Millie, how do you know all this stuff? His greatest hits. <laughs> I, I was I was I was living with Millie in uh, the Hollywood Hills Hotel that doesn't exist anymore. It's now the Hollywood Library is where. I and mean, when I say live, I wasn't there very long. I mean, I wasn't getting my mail there, but I didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, yeah, so I was living with Millie, and I met her at a, uh, a telephone booth uh, because they had those back then on Sunset Boulevard, like one block from her hotel. And she must have been on the phone with uh, somebody that she knows from Japan because she was speaking Japanese, of course. Well, I speak pretty good Japanese, to be honest with you. And uh, I forget what it was, but I just, want, you know, I just wanted to know somebody. When you're a crackhead, you're out of, like, friends. And <laughs> so, so that's how I started getting to know her and started to live at the Hollywood Hills Motel with Lily, which I thought was weird. That's obviously not her real name, but how much do you have to, you know, want to run away from your parents to pick an alias you can't pronounce? She can't say Millie. Think about it. Like Mary. Right. <laughs> Riri, what the fuck are you talking about, Riri? I had to figure it all out. Oh, it's me, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was... I'll tell you, speaking of... Uh, you're, this is fun to talk to you, Gilbert. So, um, And I can prove I had to for legal. I had to be able to prove all the things I claim in that book. There's... You know, there's a lot of arrest reports and things like that in that in that book. Um, so, Lily and I had a falling out of sorts. She, she said, I, well, she wanted, oh, no, she wanted to use the room for business. 
And I said, fuck you. I paid for the room. I'm not letting you out so you can work. Find some other place to work. It's God's oldest profession. You can do it anywhere. And uh, so she stormed out the door that she was going to go get this big guy that, that ran the desk to kick me out. And I thought, well, first of all, I'm naked. So that'd be really, I'm naked in a lot of my stories. And I thought, well, that would be weird. So uh, I'm laying there naked and uh, my wallet's on the night table and things like that. And he comes in the room and he tells me, Lily wants her room back. I said, I paid for this, not my room. So he just grabs all my shit and throws it out into a crack-infested parking lot in Hollywood. So I end up going out to get my keys and shit like that, and he slams the door, so I'm locked out of the room. And I'm stark naked. So I get in a fist fight in the streets of Hollywood, naked with a huge bouncer. That's a, that's a real story, because I finally got into my car, I actually got off, not into the sunset, but on sunset, naked, driving away. And is it true that when he was yelling at you, he called you a howdy-doody motherfucker? Looking motherfucker! It's exactly what he called me. He wouldn't take the, the thing seriously. God, you're more freshed up on this stuff than I am. He said, his research. I said, let me back in my room. And he goes, fuck you, you howdy-doody-looking motherfucker. What I thought was rude. And so I went to think I was tough, which I often do. And... Uh, I threw, I threw like a big right hand that did absolutely nothing to this guy. He hit, he hit me, and it really hurt. So I got to my car and was able to drive down Sunset Boulevard. It's the weirdest part of the story that you could never know. You know, unless you see the police report of that story, you could wonder, did that really happen? Well, I was driving across the United States with my, with my ex-wife, and we were in uh, Tennessee, in Memphis. And we decided, hey, let's go see Elvis Presley. Let's go see Graceland. And the line's really long, and all of a sudden I hear, hey, Danny. And I look, and it's the black dude from the Hollywood Hills Hotel that punched me in the face while I was naked. <laughs> the Howdy Doody guy? <laughs> it was the Howdy, it was the howdy said, Doody guy, Danny? Yes, that guy, the Howdy Doody looking motherfucker guy. And I said to my ex-wife, I said, you see, that shit absolutely happens to me. <laughs> I love the fact. <laughs> that a black guy in a crack house knows is familiar with Howdy Doody. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny about that? I kind of thought about Ben, but everything was moving so fast. Like, how do you fucking know Howdy Doody? But he did. <laughs> I wonder if he knew Sandy Becker. Oh, Sandy Becker. <laughs> Joe Joe Bolton. And, and Farfall. <laughs> Wow, you can really just pick them out. Here's a challenging segue, Danny, from that. Let's talk a little bit about growing up in Philly. And and you come from a showbiz family, actually, which I don't think a lot of people know, that your grandfather was in vaudeville. Yeah, my grandfather was in uh, vaudeville vaudeville and pretty much started radio in Philadelphia with uh, Dick Clark. I've known Dick Clark. My whole life, I literally, he, was, he came by the hospital to give my mom some gifts when I was born, and I have known that guy ever since. Interesting. And then you went on to work with him on the other half, and he was on the Partridge family. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's weird. Uh, somebody mentioned that they saw that Partridge family yesterday, that it was the Partridge family episode with Dick Clark, where, and I said, I just said it this morning on my radio show, not on there, we were off the air, I said, isn't that the one where I win the... Emmy, the, the Oscar, uh, the Tony, whatever, and I said, and then I'm also the pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he goes, yeah, and you can see my weather girl going, all right, now you're lying, you were never the pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, but it was all in an episode with Dick Clark. So you, what was your grandfather's name? It was Jack? 
Jack Steck. Jack, Jack Steck. Steck. And he helped Ed McMahon start in the business as well? Do I have my facts he right? He did. He, he started Ed McMahon, and uh, my grandfather started Ed McMahon, and uh, who the hell, Ed, Dick Clark. I, he got all these people started. And you know what? They were really, really loyal to him. At his funeral, they both showed up. And I thought, that, you know, that's really sweet. And this was a real distance from the year that they got discovered, and my grandfather put them in show business. He died at 100 years old. And wow. sure enough, they both showed up. Is your maternal grandfather? Yes, your, yes, your yeah, mom's yes, father. Yes. And your and your dad worked at the Philly Zoo and did a kitty show with animals. Oh, this is this is a this is a great story, man. He was known as Joe the Zoo Man, and he um he, uh, he put on this little Saturday morning uh, uh, show with the animals, and he is a really little guy. Like I towered over my dad. Uh, he was fun. <laughs> he was he was five foot two, and he's showing everybody this uh, uh, boa constrictor. And, hey, kids, this is the largest living snake in the world, or whatever the hell he was saying. And it goes up, and it wraps around the boom microphone and just starts to hang my dad. And he him right, <laughs> right up off the ground. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's one of those famous stories when you get back to Philadelphia. I hear all about my grandfather, because there is not a TV or radio station that doesn't have his fingerprint on it somewhere. But then every now and again you hear the Jones and Zoo Man story where he's hanging from a boon mic from a boa constrictor. Now, you and your father didn't, I mean, he was like a very successful TV writer, Dick Van Dyke right. show and Andy Griffith show, Al, many, yeah, many other shows. A great a list of classic and shows. And then he went, you know, that's a big career when you start off, that's in black and white. When, and from Philly, he got that job from Philly. And I believe he ended up doing uh, One Day at a sh- Time and, sh- and the. Uh, Jefferson's and Good Times. Yeah, that was the end yeah. of his career. So really, really talented guy. A dick like you wouldn't believe. And I don't mean like a big one to brag over. I mean the guy's an asshole. But he's a really talented asshole. Well, he beat all of you, didn't he? All the, his sons, all his kids. Oh, I thought, he, I thought he, the way he said all of you. No, no, no. He missed my feet. What do you mean, Gil? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, he, he was a very physical cat. And and uh, it was your um, your your TV show manager played by Dave Madden, the great Dave Madden. Yeah, yeah. who yeah. used to take you home with him. To- yeah, I mean, it was a thing. Like one time, and this is a, this is a story that gets a lot of play. Is the fact that no everybody knew he was beating me up, and everybody nobody loved it. But you know what? No, we weren't as hands off today as, uh, as people were back then. And uh, one day sh- he gave me a black eye, and people had to wait for me to get my makeup. And you know, Shirley Jones, the goddamn Academy Award winner, and I don't know if she said, "Hey, we got to do something about this," but I don't know if Dave Madden got the short straw. But that guy would take me home all sorts of different weekends so that I didn't go out to stay at my dad's house. And God love him. You know, he was a, a surrogate dad for me. Uh, the guy that played Ruben uh, was a surrogate dad for me. And uh, I just, I will love him. And I, you know what? Uh, uh, is, he died, I don't know, this year. In January, this yeah, year. January of this year, yeah. January of this yeah. year. So uh, he, he will be well missed. An excellent, by the way, an excellent magician. Really good. Yeah, I was doing some research on him. I, he started as a folk singer, and then he became a, a comedian who did magic. Right. Right, and then he became a full-time comedian who ended up on, uh, uh, not Laughing. what was that yeah, show? Well, yeah, he was on, yeah, he yeah, was on I Laugh-In. remember him on Laughing. He was on Laughing. That was Laughing. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, he used to do that. He loved it. And he did a sitcom before the Partridge family called Cap, uh, Camp Runamuck. 
Camp Rademach, yeah. He was a, I, I'm not sure if he was a camp counselor or what, but he, he, he did that show before the Partridge Family, Camp Rademach. Then the Partridge Family. And before that, uh, uh, laughing, the guy worked. Oh, yeah. And both of you popped up, I think, together on Married with Children. Yeah, this is a weird episode because, you know, after the Partridge Family went off the air, I just, I didn't. I did not expect to be out of work. I expected to be a highly paid teenager, and I wasn't. And I kept going on out for auditions. And it's easy to say, oh, well, he was typecast for me at the Partridge that which may or may not be true. But also there might be the fact that I sucked at it. Oh, I was terrible at it. <laughs> but any time I got a job, uh, I remember I was on an episode of Chips. And I had, there was a couple of the Brady Bunch on it and somebody else from a 70s TV show. And we're just doing it, and I didn't even think of it. And the guy that shared my dressing room with me, how the mighty had fallen, said something about these shows that are kind of, kind of fun because they're stunt-casted. And I'd never heard that expression before, <laughs> stunt-casted. And he goes, you know, you get on these guys, it's kind of like a big stunt. Well, I took exception. Apparently, you shouldn't hit your co-actors. Uh, and, so, uh, and that did not end well, that particular episode of Chips. or Was it Chips or was it uh, Pacific Blue? But anyway, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> your, your post-Partridge family acting career. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> you can see it every now and again. You get run away with yourself right here. Well, Dan, take take us back a little bit. You, the family, your your, your dad gets the uh, the uh, the TV episode while you're still living in Philly. He decides he's going to move the family to Hollywood. And how does that, the how does the, the acting? He writes he writes the episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show from his office at the zoo in Philadelphia. Like I said, I never loved the guy, but pretty goddamn impressive, you know. That's great. And uh, so they said, uh, okay, do you want to move to? Uh, First of all, they said he, they wrote him a letter when he sent the script to Dick Van Dyke, and they said, for legal reasons, we can't open up unsolicited mail. And I guess my dad thought that was it, and they said, on the other hand, somehow we opened it. It's great. Do you want to move to California? And my dad said, yeah. The next thing I know, we're all living in the San Fernando Valley. And, and how did the acting thing uh, happen for you? You were four when you moved, right? Uh, you know, I had done a couple of things with Dick Clark. Like I said, I've known him my, my whole life. Right. Uh, I know a couple of things with Dick Clark. I did a commercial for uh, a shampoo commercial with him, as a matter of fact, because uh, I had crazy uh, red hair back there. And so I, I'm literally, my mom and I are going to the Copper Penny in, in Burbank. It's right down the street from our house at that point. And I, I forget what brought this on because I got, you know, that's 45 years ago or more. I'm talking to my mother and I said, as Thoreau once said, and I do the quote from Th- Thoreau, because I will tell you, if you couldn't do at least five good quotes in my dad's house, he was going to beat you harder. So, um, <laughs> so some guy leans up over the partition between the two booths and said, if that kid doesn't have an a agent by noon today, it's a crime, or whatever he said. Well, that guy was Dr. Kildare. Richard Chamberlain? Yes, Richard Chamberlain. My, my mom loved Richard Chamberlain. So she goes, hey, Dr. Kildare says we need an agent. Let's go get one. And so, so we did. And I did a couple other things. I did uh, an episode of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, interestingly oh, sure. enough, written by my father. Right. Uh, didn't you do Bewitched? I did two different episodes of Bewitched. Okay. <laughs> Remember how we were talking about weird shit that happens to you, and, or only you, or only me? I'm the only guy I know that's been bit on the head by two different chimpanzees. How's that? <laughs> one, of them was a chi- 
One was the chimp on, on Bewitched. Uh, he was uh, a famous director. I wish I could remember his name. The guy, and he's been uh, uh, Bewitched, if you will. And he's now, he did something wrong to some witch, and now he's a chimpanzee. So uh, I do my two or three scenes with him, but now they got the chimp is at the playground at the studio, and I, he's on the highest end level of the monkey bars, which now I find ironic. Uh, <laughs> And so I climb up with him thinking that all chimps are fun, and this <laughs> fucker bits me and bites me on the head for no good reason. <laughs> chimps are horrible animals. Did you ever yeah, work with I chimp? didn't know that. I didn't know. Remember that? What was that? Trans- Trevor, the killer chimp. Remember that guy? He bit that lady's face off. There was oh, a yeah. guy oh, yeah. who was also attacked by a chimp and had his penis. I remember that. Yes, mutilated. Could have been worse, Dan. It could have been worse. Could you imagine if I'm telling these stories with fun and then I go, and that's when the chimp bit my penis. (laughs) (laughs) So let me see if I have my chronology right. You did shows like Accidental Family with Jerry Van Dyke. Right. Bewitched, two episodes of Bewitched, Ghost and Mrs. Muir, Mayberry RFD, uh, and a show Gilbert and I love, uh, My World and Welcome to It with William Wyndham. Yes, oh my, that's a, that was a great show, and uh, it was on uh, when I first met my wife seven years ago, and, and I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm about to be on this show, I'm <laughs> in this show, and we sit frozen, and I, I pop up on the show, well, do you remember, was I four or five? I mean, I'm really tiny when I do My World and Welcome to It. Yeah, and so did your dad wrote some of those episodes, was it just the yeah. Ghost and Mrs. Muir one? It's funny, because he gets a lot of uh, flack for hating my TV career, which he did. But he didn't hate just my TV career. He hated TV. He thought it was awful and everybody in it was awful. He thought, um, he thought it was just a, a bad medium. He was, my dad was an angry guy. My God, that was <laughs> my dad, you know, we didn't really talk, uh, my dad and I. And I remember all of a sudden I go to bed, Danny Bondici, and I wake up Danny Partridge, and there's hundreds, literally, this is not like a thing you say, I wake up, Danny Partridge with hundreds of fans in my front yard with signs and shit. And so my mom and I are going to go to the set because that's what we, we do now. This is the part of our lives. And I go to leave and my dad grabs my shoulder like it's hard enough to let me know whatever is about to come out of his mouth is not going to be great. And he says to me, remember, acting is one step below pimping. And then he shoved me out the door, and I was like, thanks, Dad. (laughs) We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Now, I heard a story, even if it's not true, tell me it's true. All right. That with uh, David Cassidy, when he was at the height of his uh, teeny bopper stage. Yeah, which was huge, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was tremendous back then. And he would leave his house in the morning, and he had a gate around his house that would be mobbed with girls. Yeah, oh, yeah, and, mobbed, mobbed. And I heard he sometimes would take his dick and stick it through the bars in the fence. That's <laughs> totally true. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Things weren't as illegal. Like, I happened to find my penis, one of the most amusing things in the world. And uh, we were talking about this, about things that were taken out of context, stuff like that, on my radio show the other day. Some lady, I was the manager of Sushi on Sunset. Sunset. And she didn't have her wallet to pay her bill. And you could see by all her equipment, she's a professional photographer. But the real manager, my boss, 
didn't know who she is and didn't care. She could leave her cameras here and go to her hotel room, get her wallet, and come back and pay. So she said, all right, you're kind of weird, but okay. While she's gone, I took probably 50 pictures of my cock. <laughs> and, you know, she was livid. <laughs> Only 50. Oh, if it would have had one of those really fast shooters, man, but it ran out of film. I see. So, so, so David, so uh, when David Cassidy, he wasn't scared at all? Well, like I said, you didn't, you didn't hear things about women suing people back then just because they saw your dick. It wasn't that big of a deal. I think he was more worried about actually opening the electric gates with his dick still in there. That would have been it. And by the way, are you aware that his dick is enormous? He, uh, David Cassidy has an enormous dick? It's, it's called a red foot. It has its own name, Donk. You can only refer to his dick as Donk. <laughs> The things you learn on the Gilbert Godfrey podcast. He wouldn't strike, because it's funny, because he always wore those, like, really, really tight pants. Sure. Right, sure. So did he have something there to hide the size of his cock? Uh, You know what? uh, It certainly wasn't his ego, because that was overexposed anywhere else. But no, I I just think he had an enormous dick, and he loved it. I would love to have an enormous dick. So you would like to have David Cassidy's dick? I I would. You heard it here first. <laughs> I would love to have David Cassidy's dick. Now, think about how lucky the girl I boofed in the alley was that I didn't have it. <laughs> oh God! Wow! All right, D- Dan. I, I heard. <laughs> I heard when. <laughs> I remember when you were fucking her in the ass, she was screaming out, thank God this isn't David Cassidy. <laughs> I remember that. I could have fucked Cassidy. That's what she said. And I said, you know how lucky you are. <laughs> Before we go completely off the rails, if we haven't, how, yeah. how was the Partridge family first presented to you? Because it was based on the cow sills, an actual family band. It was. Uh, and I, I, I say this to people. I say, you know, it was actually, here's what I say. I say this, this show was based on the councils, but then they went into a Screen Gems meeting and the bosses at Screen Gems went, oh my God, you're like the ugliest family in the world. We can't pick you guys. And they couldn't act so either, they, right? What? They, they couldn't act either, right? Wasn't that part of the problem? I, I don't know if they got that far because they really are a homely group of people. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we're we're basically based uh, based on uh, on the councils. And wasn't an, an unaired pilot with Jack Cassidy playing Shirley's uh, her actual husband? Yes, that's right. You're absolutely right. That is what that would have been weird to have him around. He wasn't all, the world's nicest guy, Jack yeah. Cassidy. Yeah. But you know, for a little kid growing up in Hollywood and deciding, hey, this whole thing is is super neat. You couldn't get a better role model role model than uh, 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 Jack Cassidy. I I went to their house one time. I don't know, on the weekend, early in the morning, I was going to hang out with uh, Sean Cassidy. We were kind of buddies. And I said this to Shirley years ago in an interview. Of course, you know, I have a, uh, a child's memory of this. This couldn't be the way it actually goes. But I knocked on the door at 9 o'clock in the morning. Jack, Jack Cassidy answered in a smoking jacket holding a martini. And Shirley goes, no, that was Jack. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And now... I, and it was similar, like a similar relationship in that David and Jack uh, 
uh, hated each other, I think. Yeah, well, if you believe uh, David's book, uh, which is, you know, David writes a book called Come On, Get Happy, yet failed to, uh, <laughs> that Jack was really jealous of David's career. And I can see that. He was a performer. He was on Broadway. He was welcome. And David Cassidy selling out Angel Stadium in, you know, two hours. I can see being a little jealous over that. I'm jealous of the size of the guy's dick. There's a lot to be jealous about with this guy. <laughs> Jack Cassidy had a big career. I mean, he was great in comedies. Did a lot of stuff. He was. Um, do you do you remember that? What was that show he used to do where he played a superhero uh, astronaut? Do you remember that? Oh gosh, we have to look that one up. Yeah. A huge director was the star of it. Uh, a current uh, director. Jack uh, Cassidy. Ah, it's good. I wouldn't even know to what, give you enough hints. What I remember it. with Jack Cassidy the best is. He was in an episode of Columbo. My favorite. Oh, sure. Yeah, as a magician. He was a magician. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you are also friends with um, a character actor who's a favorite of ours, and he played the Mad Doctor in uh, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, uh, Whit Bissell, I heard. Oh, I loved Whit Bissell, but you know why I loved uh, Whit Bissell? He was the stepfather of the second Chris on the Partridge family, if I'm not mistaken. Brian Forster? Wait, wait, I could be completely wrong on that. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I could be completely wrong on that. Don't, don't quote me. But, uh, yeah, it's good friends with Whit Bissell. I love Whit Bissell. And also, now, how did you find out you were f- uh, that the Partridge family was over? Oh, uh, this, uh, this is a kind uh, you know... 20 years ago when I was, you know, doing anything I could for a couple of bucks, this was a much sadder story than it is today. But <laughs> I, I will tell you, we're doing the part where you get her. It's the biggest hit in the world. You can't go anywhere. Girls are screaming. Um, you know, everybody wants to talk to you and stuff like that. And I, I go with my mom and we go to the gate of the Columbia Studios, Columbia Ranch Studios. We go to pull in. And I don't know if there are pleasantries uh, uh, sent back and forth first, but the first things I can hear that guard audibly say is, I'm sorry, the Partridge family doesn't live here anymore. And I thought, fuck! (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is going to haunt me for the next 30 years, as it did. (laughs) Were there there any standout episodes, Dan? Because Gilbert and I were just talking about the Richard Pryor episode, which is amazing to watch. he was the first person I ever heard say the N-word. I couldn't fucking believe And the, all the white celebrities on the part of our eyes lit up like, holy shit, did he just say that? But there was uh, Mel, Mel Burns, that was the hair guy, hands uh, Richard Pryor this silver comb, just the one he used on all of us, the N-word, and Richard Pryor did five minutes on the N-comb. Oh, he always carry around the N-comb with you. Holy fuck, what's he saying? He might as well have taken David Cassidy's dick out. We could not have been more startled. Wow. And some, some of the people that were on the show were uh, Jodie Foster, Johnny Cash, and two uh, iconic actors from The Wizard of Oz, Margaret Hamilton and Ray Bulger. That's right. Uh, uh, you know, if one more would have had it, we'd have had the trifecta uh, of uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow that... Uh, Ray Bolger, I think, played my Shirley's father. That's, I saw that's correct. My, relationship. my grandfather. He played my grandfather. Great guy. Great guy. And, you know, a lot of times, almost all times, if somebody's over the top, they can't be like you expect them to be. Except Ray Bolger was the goddamn straw man, was the scarecrow, 
any chance he got. He loved it. He'd do the dances. Uh, you know, he'd go, it wasn't that way. No, it wasn't that way. And so, holy shit, that's, that's the great. scarecrow. That's great. I didn't think we'd get a Ray Bolger impression out of you today, Dan. <laughs> you know, when you went to work this morning, you thought, what, what am I not going to get? I know, a Ray Bolger impersonation. Did you do any singing at all? I mean, I know you've talked about this over the years. And did you do any playing at all? Because I read somewhere that you may do, have... Do you have any talent whatsoever? <laughs> no, man. No. And if they'd have paid me any better, it would have been a, a, a unlawful that I made that much money while having no talent. But yeah, I didn't play. I didn't sing. Uh, there's a pretty famous story with uh, me and uh, David Cassidy. And, you know, David Cassidy did not come into his own about, hey, I'm going to be David Cassidy and you're not. It kind of took like three episodes. And one day around the third episode, I got this big giant bass guitar over my neck and I'm strumming it like a, like a guitar. And the music goes up, we're going to do the thing again. And David Cassidy goes, you don't strum a bass, you pluck it. Do you think you can pluck it, kid? And they went, I'll pluck it, man, please. <laughs> well, didn't you make a, a, a poll, a recent poll of, of, uh, of top bass players? Uh, I think I came in like number four in the uh, top bass players. And, you know, a Sting is pretty, still pretty upset that I came in number four. In the top. And it was a Playboy magazine, those things that are kind of taken seriously. Uh, most famous or most qualified bass player in the world. And I came in number four out of ten. And you didn't play at all because I saw you. Not, in- not ever, not even a little. <laughs> now, now, when when that show was on, Susan Day was like a sex symbol. To oh yeah, guys. sure, sure, sure. But I I heard she had like a real eating disorder. Well, you know what? Um, that I would believe that to be true. I've heard it, but uh, also I've heard it from Susan Day and other people just in conversation. She was uh, five eight. And never broke a hundred pounds. But the weirdest thing, because like uh, the word anorexia, that wasn't really it didn't come to the top of anybody's list just. But this is when everybody noticed. And I swear to God, this is true. But it happens to people because I've I've mentioned a couple times. People call me up and say, "Oh, that happened to so and so." She was only eating carrot sticks. That's it. That's all she was going to eat. And the fucking girl turned orange and full on orange. Like they couldn't work with her. We had to shut down for a week. Wow. And, and you said. She had gotten so thin at one point that you had seen her in a bikini at one point, and you were at your horniest back then, and you saw her in a bikini, and you said to her, you should eat something. I did. I, I, I remember where, I, where we were on a beach. I remember this. I walked up to her, and it turned out to be a pretty big deal. And maybe, you know, I shouldn't have said that to a girl that's known for being beautiful. But I said, you know, you got to eat something, Susan. What was happening is, you know how you sit sometimes, your legs fold, and she's leaning forward. I'm going to go with reading a book. That describes the body position. And her spine was sticking so far out. And uh, the next thing I know, years and years later, they're talking about her anorexia in People magazine. Did you act out on the set, Danny? Because I'm reading some, I read some things in Shirley Jones' book. Did you get a, a picture of milk poured over your head? I did, by the same girl, Susan Day. Maybe she's mad because I called her skinny. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I was. I, you know, I wasn't a bad kid. I just think they weren't prepared for what you would call today a handful. And I don't think, you know, they were... Uh, 
making room for a handful on the set of the party show. So I don't remember what I was doing, but I remember exactly where we were. And you can see this episode if you want, but you don't see the filling of the pouring of the milk. We're sitting we're all around the kitchen table because that's where the party family ate. They ate at the kitchen table and the dining room table. We all ate meals at the same time, and we all had pajamas. I found that very weird about these people. But anyway, I don't know if I missed the line or was I was being a dick or something like that, but... All of a sudden, it was cold. Where do you get cold milk on the set of the Partridge family? And she just dumps a whole glass container of milk right over my head. And I was about to cause a scene. I remembered in my head. I froze because it scared me because I didn't know what was happening exactly. And by the time I calmed down, I went, don't throw a scene. They're kind of sick of you here. That would be a hint. Interesting. Now, you, you were 10 years old when you, when you started the show. Do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, I say 10 through 15, but I think it was like 14 and two, uh, maybe a half, 14 and a half. Were you watching Susan Day change her clothes a couple yes. of times? Yeah, a couple of times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, they're a talk show. I've done every talk show in America, and I've never met anybody as prepared for an interview as Gilbert goddamn Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what I had done... And every question is about nudity and putting your penis through a gate. (laughs) Yeah, who's got the bigger dick? And she sees the day's hooters, what happened here? I climbed up on the roof of her her dressing room before she moved into a dressing room of her own. It was just a trailer with the other guys. And I just leaned over the side and I could see above between the curtains where the curtains are and the top of the, the, the window. And there she was. I, I think I didn't see her full-blown naked, but I, I saw her in her underwear. And, man, skinny girl boobs are weird. <laughs> you know, I'm, like, I'm like 12 years old. That should have been the greatest day of my life. And I'm thinking back while looking back, I'm going, ooh, Jesus, have a snack. What? Describe what her boobs look like. Um, let's see. It's, uh... I'm gonna have to go. I wish I could be more clever than this, but I'm gonna go with banana boobs. Oh, what? Banana boobs. <laughs> Little tiny. Because I had a girlfriend one time, and before she was my girlfriend, she said to me, she made some comment about her little her boobs were, and when I saw them, they were. They were as little as she said they were gonna be, and so 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 sexy. But Susan's were just ew, yuck. Put a shirt on, for God's sake! I'm twelve. <laughs> And, of course, she and David went on to have uh, an affair that I was did, quite, I don't know, I don't quite know well publicized. I don't know if it's an affair or it's literally a weekend, um, uh-huh. but it was called off really, really, and this is, uh, you know, they didn't talk to me that much. I was 10, but from what I understand, she never got over it. Now, I'm sure she may tell a different story, but as I understand it, she never got over that she wasn't the girl for Cassidy. Wow. I heard she was like, crazy about him from the beginning yeah well everybody was crazy it's funny because sometimes i see pictures of him and he holds up meaning the pictures from back then everybody was in love with david cassidy and on the flip side of that everybody was in the uh, was in love with susan day so uh you know it was bound to happen but it was bound to be it was brief and it was and like you know we're still talking about this many years later did so uh, did you bone susan day or did susan day bone him so you know it it was a big deal but i heard she never got over it now, also, did your, uh, your Shirley Jones, your mother on this show, right. while you were in your imaginary home, 
of the right. partridge. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, Gottfried. <laughs> Do I know? Am I right? I think so. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm being an asshole on the set. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm being me. I was just a bad kid. I didn't do anything terrible, but I was, I was a handful. And finally, I ran up to Susan, to Shirley Jones. I don't know what I had done, but she looked at me dead seriously. She, she pointed up the stairs that led nowhere and yelled, Jenny, <laughs> go to your room. And I was like, I there's nothing up there. The I don't have a room. It was just, <laughs> it was like the quote fiddler on the roof. One long staircase just leaning up. Hilarious. That, well, I never got that reference to the party side before, but that was fairly awesome. See? <laughs> I never heard that story. Danny, can I ask you a little bit about the music? Because I saw a clip of you and David in concert. Were you guys yeah. in, in Vegas or something? Or, or Atlantic uh, City? It, dep- it depends. There was a time in the early 90s, and maybe actually... 91, 92, and this was, to be honest with you, because it never gets brought up this way, this is post-transvestite. Uh, Nobody was hiring me. I didn't have a lot of money. spent a lot of money in legal bills. It was just a drag. <laughs> pardon, pardon the pun. <laughs> it was a drag. So um, David Cassidy calls me up and says, hey, do you want to open for me? And I said, yeah. And I thought he was talking about butt-fucking me. I, <laughs> what do you mean, man? But I'll do it for $100. But he said, why don't you go on stage and do comedy? And I said, I just said yes, really fast. But I didn't, I didn't do any comedy. We're talking about 30-some-odd years ago. Uh, and I said, okay, I will, because I, I really need the money. And it went okay. And I did it like four more times. Uh, and then that was that. And then 20 years later, I got, uh, you know, I've got some dough now. It's okay. I don't have to open for fucking Cassidy. And, uh, but I thought it would be nice of me. He, so I had him on my radio show. He challenged me. He said, can you learn one single Partridge Family song on the bass in the next four weeks and then do it for me in Atlantic City? And I said, yeah, I can. Man, that was so hard. No wonder I didn't play the bass on the show. Well, I saw the clip. It's you guys playing Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted. Or with me counting the whole time. One and three and five and two, because that's how I remember the song all numerically. Oh, it looked very now, convincing. I heard... Uh, well, it, it were. I mean, it's the base root can, as, uh, of that song. I played it that one time. I did it. Now, one time you were on stage, and, and they, uh, the audience started throwing coins at you. I heard. Oh, I remember. This was my, like, my very first job. I'm doing a radio show in uh, Chicago, again, 30 years ago or something like that. And the morning disc jockey here, incredibly famous and really funny, Jonathan Brandmeier. Oh, uh, yeah. He's a great guy. Oh, sure. You know him? Sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I've been on the show a bunch of times. I figured, absolutely. So I'm on, um, you know, I, I guess it was uh, something bad at happening. It was in the newspaper. Oh, I know. It was the time I was arrested for cocaine in 1985. So this, <laughs> this is a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> so he invites me. We do a bunch of uh, interviews. And he he really like like for the radio he doesn't have a mean bone in his body this guy but for the radio he doesn't mind that I'm broke and just keeps about hey you know you got to come do this act it's gonna be great we'll give you a couple of bucks so he thinks it's funny and I think it's funny he's a good sport that guy so I go on stage to I don't know if we're gonna sing uh, uh, I think I love you or some such thing but either way as I'm on it people are starting to throw ice at me and it was a hockey ring it had seventeen thousand seats and it was sold out of a Brandon and Jonathan Brandmeier show. And I'm getting tagged a couple of times in the head with these, with these ice cubes. I'm like, these guys are dicks. And I looked down at the stage and I realized, 
It's money. <laughs> money in me. So I started to collect them, and somebody got and scooped me up off the stage. I don't know if it was tawdry or something. Fuck you. And there was like probably five or six hundred dollars in quarters up there. <laughs> now, you used to have a story. scam going when you were homeless that you would call up these like. Uh, hot nightclubs in the yeah, area. The, the Roxbury is the one that comes to mind. That's oh, exactly. Okay. And I did it a couple of times. But I, I, I what I would do is uh, I would call people up and I'd say uh, I'd, I'd change my voice to whatever I did, and I'd, I'd say I'm the show coordinator from the Tonight Show, uh, Danny Bondici. You might remember him from the Partridge Family and Mick Jagger. We'll be coming in this evening. They met today on the show, and apparently they hit it off, and they're really good friends now. So you please have a table together for Danny Bonucci and Mick Jagger. And uh, so if I did this for a really long time. I did this trick. <laughs> God, it's, uh, it's so funny now. Uh, so I go to the, uh, the Roxbury a couple of different times, or, or nightclubs a couple of different times, and I say, hey, uh, I'm Danny Bonucci. Is Mick here yet? And they'll go, oh, no, but your table's right up there. Here, this will walk your table. I went, great. So I pull up to the Roxbury one night, and I go, all right, Danny Bonucci, is Mick Jagger here yet? And the guy goes, yes, he is. He's at your table. <laughs> and they take me right up, and they sit me down. Like, Mick is with a bunch of people. And they sit me right down here, one or two guys away from, from Mick, and he's looking at me like, what the fuck? So I decide I'm going to tell him my famous Mick Jagger story. He's going to love Danny Bonaduce's famous Mick Jagger story. So I tell him about what I did tonight, and I tell him, it's been getting me into nightclubs for 20 years. And he goes, huh, and says this, what a cheeky bloke. And then waves me away, away, like the back of his hand. Oh, what a cheeky bloke. And off I go. That's all he said. Yes, you're wow. a cheeky bloke. Wow. You just gave Gilbert an idea for getting into clubs. <laughs> Here, I, I think uh, I've either wrote this or did it in uh, on, uh, on stage or something. But here's my way to alter that that thing so it works for you: is you just say you're the drummer from Three Dog Night. Who can identify the drummer from Three Dog Night? The rest of the nights in Three Dog Night cannot tell who the drummer is. That's funny. <laughs> And also, when when you were homeless, you used to uh, uh, have people were asking for your autographs and asking for your picture, and and around the block was your car that you lived in. Right. Oh no, this is a thing. Uh, this is so bizarre, man. And you know, we've had a couple of Danny Bonaduce boys that this weird story, but this was weird. I lived in my car behind Grom and Chinese. And I would wake up at whatever time I woke up, like stretch, walk out. And that's where everybody's looking at the shoe prints and the thing and asking me for my autograph. And it dawned on me, if these people only knew that I'm living by the dumpster in the back. And I ended up living there for over a year. Wow. Yeah. Did, did you ever think of asking any of them for like, you know, I'll give you my autograph for a dollar? Not a fucking chance. Never, ever. I'd die first. Um, <laughs> My, I have a deal with my I have a deal with my stepfather, who, by the way, is uh, my father-in-law, right? Who's five years younger than I am. That's kind of weird. But I have a deal with him, and it was uh, if he ever sees me at an autograph show, just shoot me. <laughs> but homeless is fine. 
Homeless, homeless well, now I'm thinking that maybe I would do them because I see real-life celebrities doing them now. There, there must be good money in them. I don't know. But the idea of selling your face, love Danny Bonaduce. My, You're my best friend, Danny Bonaduce. <laughs> David Cassidy's got a giant cock. Love you. This is weird. Didn't, didn't you work? Do I have my information right, Danny? Didn't you work for Kenny Rogers around that time? I did. I worked on his ranch, the Jolly Roger Ranch in uh, uh, Malibu, and I would pick up six. They still had horses. Uh, my mom and I both had a horse left over from the Partridge family, uh, and they're they're not dead yet. Um, and uh, we couldn't afford to to get rid. I mean, we couldn't afford to keep them anywhere. And it's hard to sell a horse. It's not that easy to sell a horse. And uh, so he let me sweep shit at his at his restaurant, <laughs> at his stables, at, at his stables, and uh, that's what I did. Yeah. And I also um, heard that you. Uh, can make money like once a year, and it's coming up soon. Oh no, it's so it's completely true. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you this right now, and this really it this mattered to me from I don't know what years were the most fucked, uh, eighty through ninety one with the transvestite, <laughs> whatever, whatever it was. Things were mean a couple of times, and I would get a, a, a phone call every Christmas from a Kmart in uh, Wyoming, and they would pay me five hundred dollars to sit in a tree outside their grand opening, and for that money I would become Danny Partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> but but you wouldn't do an autograph show. <laughs> no, because an autograph show is <laughs> You bastard. And didn't you also say Jane Fonda and Rosie O'Donnell should be executed for treason? <laughs> I remember specifically uh, saying, uh, uh, well, just, you know, until recently, a lot of the country thought that Jane Fonda should be executed. You know, she did some treasonous shit sitting over there on an aircraft, a North Vietnamese aircraft gun. You can't do that shit. So, but I, by the way, we had to go, I have forgiven her. I don't know why I forgave her, but it was real recently. I held on it wherever. But... I forget what comment Rosie O'Donnell made that I really didn't like. Oh, I think and about September 11th. Was that what it was? I that, no, she, why would that get you treason? She would say, I think... She, I well, she think, was saying it was an inside job. Yeah, that America... That's what it was. Right. That's what it was. She's saying the president... You know, I didn't have any great love for Bush, but what the hell? He's an okay guy. But to say he killed American citizens, that's treason. You hang the big bitch. <laughs> Danny, this is jumping back, but I just want to ask one Partridge Family question. How, uh, your, your kids, did your kids watch it? Did they? Did, 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 what was their reaction to seeing Dad? Uh, you know, as a ten-year-old in a, in a hit TV show. Uh, you know what? I, I don't quite remember how they saw it. I know that they that they've seen it, but it didn't make any uh, 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 great impact on their lives. On the other hand. They saw my reality show, Breaking Bonaduce, where I was drunk and crazy for every single episode. They saw that one. I remember. Oh, God. You know, I live a life mostly without regrets, but that was a bad decision. You mean agreeing? You mean deciding to do the show in the first place? Well, I wrote the show, so I can't really say that. But I didn't expect it to go, you know, I'm going, hey, I think they're liking this crazy drunk thing. Let me do more of it. And they say, I'm waking up. I got no pants on. The crew's leaving. It was, it was weird. And, oh, go ahead, Gil. And, and I think in 
years ago in like Thailand or something, some American kid was stealing cars or stealing, breaking into uh, It was uh, keying cars and graffitiing. Okay. And well, they were going to cane this guy, and everybody cared. Like yeah, and they were like, and caning was was whacking someone in the ass with a thing called a shinai, and it's a really goddamn serious. It bites the bamboo strips go they go inside and then they grab a hold of your flesh and come out. And I said, because I, I had a radio show to do at this point, and I said, uh, listen, I don't think it's such a big deal. I, he want, they wanted him to go for ten ten canings, and I said, I'll do it. And my show was very popular at that time. And uh, so I said, I'll do it. And I'll go. I went out on Michigan Avenue, and I dropped my pants, and a real-life martial arts instructor with a black belt on just whacked me on the ass as hard as he could. And immediately, I felt the, the sting, and that hurt, but the thing that threw me immediately, I could feel the blood going into my shoes. I've been, like, seriously injured right then. And I look at my boss, Larry Wirt is his name, wonderful guy, and he knows that I'm going to take these ten canings no matter what. I've said I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. And I look at him, and I go, hey, you better get me out of this. I might just die on Michigan Avenue. And he said, hey, I'm calling a stop to this right now. One of the stupidest things I ever did, but I would not, I would not say I had a big regret about it. I've got a scar, but I don't have any regrets. Yeah, how does your ass look now? Do you have a bunch of scars on it? No, I have a bunch of tattoos. You have a tattoo uh, of have, Seattle on your back, don't you? I have Seattle, but that was one I just wanted for me. Well, I guess I wanted them all on them for me. I got the Loop in Chicago, the radio station logo. I've got, uh, what's that, guys? What's that Scottish comic that has a TV show for a few more minutes? Craig uh, Ferguson. Greg Ferguson, I have his logo and his ass on my butt. I have my boss's name on my butt. Honey, how many names do I have on my butt? Fourteen. Is there room for Gilbert Gottfried on there? Yeah, there is if you wanted it to mean something to you, sure. Oh, I'd absolutely love it. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, I'll get around it. How hard can it be? Let, let's talk for a minute about some of the boxing matches, uh, yeah, Danny. It's so much fun. Tell, tell us about how you came to fight Donnie Osmond. Uh, that was, you know, that was a, 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 an iffy thing. Um, I was doing radio in Chicago, I guess, afternoon drive, nighttime. I don't really remember. And I can hear Donnie Osmond on the radio with Jonathan Brandmeier. And Brandmeier's talking about who's tougher, him or Danny Partridge. And he says him. And I hear the first time, and I'm thinking, don't get sucked into anything here, Donnie. This could be really bad for you. <laughs> and by the time it's over, Donnie Osmond is saying he could beat me up in a boxing match. <laughs> So I went, it was, a, it was a China club in, oh, before 90, I think. And uh, I will tell you this. I, here's the thing. I'm, all, well, I'm pretty drunk at this point, which is the way you should go into any boxing match. But it's not any fucking Osmond. So I'm pretty drunk. I go into the ring, and the bell rings. I run across. Oh, you hear me gritting my teeth? I'm mad even thinking about it. I run across the ring, and I just start beating this guy to, to death. And... <sighs> They ring the bell, and that's it. He hasn't done anything. He's just hunched over being completely bummed out. Then I go over to my corner, and I can't breathe at all. And I can't, I can't, uh, uh, I can't get in the air, and I don't know what to do. So the bell rings, and the, uh, I walk out in the center of the ring. And it seems Donnie doesn't want a whole lot of this either. Nobody wants to really get hit in the face anymore. Uh, so not a lot of stuff happens there. And in the third round, 
he's he's he gets his wind back, and I don't. I'm I can't breathe. I'm scared to death what this is going to because if I become the guy who got his ass kicked by Donny Osmond, one of my tough guy stories going to go right out the window. Well, didn't he so, train? Didn't he train and get in oh, shape? Oh, he too? trained really serious. Yeah. Remember? Um, well, anyway, I forget what he uh, he comes running out of his corner, and he's going to kill me. I'm out of breath, and he's going to win. I know he's going to win. I don't know what to do, so I just stick my left hand out, and the guy runs into it and makes his nose bleed. And for, after that, he just started running, and I pretended I was trying to catch him, and he lost the decision, two to one me. And uh, to be honest with you, I might have given that fight to Donnie. He gets all upset about that. I think I should have won. Yeah, you should have won. I mean, you're in better shape than you weren't drunk. You should have won. <laughs> and you fought Greg Brady, too, Barry Williams. That guy I killed. And I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought that guy was going to die. Um, he... We, we get in the ring, it's for Fox TV, so this is my biggest fight ever, if you will. And I think I'm getting either 15 or 25 grand. That's like real money. Yeah. And uh, so I trained my ass off for this one. I'm not going to make the same mistake uh, again. And I win. And I don't know if, if there were other punches exchanged. I can't really remember that clearly. But I, I'll, finally, I just punched this guy in the face so hard, and he just... He just hits the hits the dirt, and he's not moving. I think I have I have killed Greg Brady. That's going to look great on the resume. Uh, so I go to my chair. I figure they count to ten. That's over. But they've altered the rules somehow, and he's been saved by the bell. They give several minutes between rounds. He ended up getting knocked to the canvas really hard nine times before they finally called him out. That was, that was, and you know what? It's funny. I'll give Greg a lot of this. Uh, when I see him in person now, there's no bad blood between us. And he really did take a beating. Didn't you do a movie with him? Didn't you do a sci-fi channel movie? Oh, yeah. yeah I did it up here in Seattle. Um, the, the Bigfoot thing. Oh, my God, that sucked. Have you seen it? <laughs> oh, I, saw, I saw you plugging it. We, it's terrible. We have no reason to doubt you. <laughs> no, you're, right. you're, you're absolutely right. That was dreadful. Bigfoot changes sizes by 50 feet. At one point, he's a big gorilla. The other side, he's the size of a building. Wow. Now, you fought O.J. Simpson's lawyer. Yeah, um, Robert Shapiro. Yes. And I was completely out of my mind on steroids at this point. And I hear that Robert Shapiro uh, would like to do a boxing match with me for charity. And I say, okay. And then I get a call from, I don't know if it was his trainer or manager or something, but they said, I don't want to give the guy, you know, uh, he's been very nice to me, but they say, this, here's, here's what I hear on the phone. Bob is terrified. He wants nothing to do with this. He's going to call the fight off. I don't call the fight off. There's any big stars there. It was like $500 a seat to go to this thing. It's going to be great. Don't call it off. I said, let me come to his gym and just talk to him. So I come to his gym, and I'm in a, a tank top, and I'm literally, I'm just jacked to the rafters on roids. I couldn't be bigger. <laughs> and so I said, hey, go one round me. Go 30 seconds with me before you call it off. And, and see if you still want to call it off. And he, he's real tender, but there are people there. It's a wild card gym, a major boxing gym. Uh, and he goes, okay, we get in the ring. And I just let him hit me in the face for about 45 minutes. He goes, oh, okay, this will be great. And then we do the thing, uh, and we're about, the, sh- the fight's just about over. And he really bloodies my nose pretty seriously in the second round. And uh, he hits me harder than I would like. There's no reason, it's for charity. There's no reason to hit me this hard, Shapiro. I just go, kaboom, and he took it. He, he didn't fall down. You can see he didn't want to do it anymore, but he, 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 he did it. I admired that guy. And great cardio, 65 years old at the time, and he could run four miles a day. 
Amazing. You've done, you've done a lot of guest shots over the last two decades, Danny. You did Married with Children, we talked about, Drew Carey show, Diagnosis Murder, that 70s show. And you, you have something in common. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I did an episode of Diagnosis Murder? It's on your resume. Oh, that's weird. So I don't your, remember that. It's on your IMDb page. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of things you don't remember. <laughs> that's exactly right. I can't imagine I was really just don't remember being with Dick Van Dyke, but okay, well, you, I, I was that way. I could be mistaken. <laughs> but, you, but, but like Gilbert, you did do an episode of CSI. Yes, I did. One dig this. I had never seen the show. And I'm not doing that to be a, a snob. It's just not one of the shows I watch, any of the NCIs or CSIs. Uh, so they call me up personally and say, hey, you want to do the show? And I go, yeah, no, no, I really don't. Thank you, though. I appreciate it. And it's because I had never seen it. I don't know. I'm busy. I'm doing all right in the radio world. I, I don't need to do CSI. Um, and my agent calls me up and goes, says, hey, did the most uh, viewed TV show on television today call you up and say you want to do an episode? I said, yes. And he said, call them back and say okay. <laughs> so I did. I, I called them back and I, I said okay. And they like me so much, dig this, I get killed in the first episode, but did three other episodes as the same character. <laughs> what, were you playing a musician or, or a DJ? They sold it to me, um, uh, they sold it to me as like an Ozzy Osbourne type guy. And did they try to explain to the audience how a dead guy is coming back? <laughs> well, yes, they did, Gilbert. <laughs> um, they had me, they brought it back because it was just the character was really popular. So they brought me back in like um, uh, things I had done for charity, like a video saying, don't bite the heads off chickens. It's not nice anymore. Uh, so I did that. And I, I did a couple other episodes from uh, like pretending I was on a talk show and stuff so I could be back. I was kind of honored by that. That really made me look good. <laughs> Gil- Gilbert, were you killed in your episode? or you- We talked about it with Jeff Ross. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff Ross uh, dies at the beginning. He's a... Uh, I'm, I'm stretching. I'm playing a stand-up comic. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Jeff Ross uh, is uh, poisoned and dies at the beginning. And, and then the rest of the show, you're wondering whether it's me or Bobcat Goldthwait who killed him. <laughs> well, who was it? <laughs> Prime suspects. <laughs> who, who was the killer? Oh, Andy? it turned out to be Bobcat. Oh, Bobcat. Yes. Yeah. I, was uh, just Bobcat. A, I was a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, what do you got I, coming I up? This, I, I wonder if this is close to home for you or not at all. I had... A five-minute conversation with Bobcat Goldthwait, so I realized, I'm talking to Bobcat Goldthwait. He doesn't do the wacky voice all the time. <laughs> oh, he's pretty normal. It, it took minutes. Yeah, it's pretty normal. <laughs> I liked him better the other way, to be honest. I thought that was really funny. I just want to ask you quickly about, because uh, uh, we're, we're coming to the end, about uh, a movie you made, a TV movie called Murder on, on Flight 502. Yeah what, do you, yeah. what do you remember about it besides hanging out with Sonny Bono and getting weird career advice? I I I, uh, I crashed his Porsche. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm like 15, and they say, uh, um, "Hey, Sonny, you need to move your your Porsche." And he looks at me like I said, I'm 15 years old at best. And he goes, "Kid, can you drive a stick?" And I go, "Yeah." <laughs> so I'm mean, going to say crash. That was a big word. When I backed it out, I broke a taillight, and I reparked it, and everything was fine. But I did. I I, cra- I crashed his car and broke his taillight. I will tell you one of my. You know, people all the time, when I tell this story, they go, oh, and I take it as a great story. I was, they had, on Murder of Flight 502, it was the, like an all-star cast. Oh, George Maharis, Robert Stack, Walter Pigeon, Ralph Bellamy. 
Walter goddamn pigeon, yeah, you know? Yeah. A, yeah. Big actor. Um, Fernando so, Lamas. Fernando I mean, literally everybody and their brother was on this. Uh, this, And it was by an era that's kind of gone by for, mo- for the most part. I was the youngest name on it. And uh, so I'm there, they've got a soundstage. And I, I wonder if they still do this for stars. They've got a soundstage filled with nothing but toys for grown-up celebrities. They got massage tables. They had video games when they first came out, like Pong and stuff like that. That's what I, And, you know, they had anything you wanted to, to entertain yourself. They had those stand-up tables that you could sleep on so you wouldn't wreck your hair. I mean, it was craziness. And I had, I don't know, 100 or so dominoes, and I spread them out all over a, a, a table so I could now, so I could push them over, and they'd all fall down. It was kind of really cool, and I was very excited. And Sonny Bono, and I hadn't even crashed his car yet, so he didn't do it for retaliation. <laughs> Sonny Bono comes in, he goes, ah, the, so the domino theory, huh? And I went, yeah, yeah. And he goes, do you ever hear about the suck theory? And I said, no, what's that? And he just hits the table really hard, and they all fall down at the exact same time. And he goes, that, my friend, is the suck theory. The suck <laughs> theory. <laughs> When I when I told that story to like Shirley Jones or a grown up or someone, they said, "Oh, that's terrible, dear." But it kind of, in a way, and I'm not completely kidding. I I understood what he meant, and like it's not all going to be like it is in this room, kid. It's not. Like, you should be prepared for when it sucks. And I think with a little help from Sonny Bono, I was not as you know he had to realize the the suck theory later on. But I, I got the suck theory from from Sonny Bono and realized, hey, it's not always going to be like it is on this movie set. And I, one time the Partridges were doing like, uh, were filming something at SeaWorld. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was a, it was actually Marine World. We okay. couldn't get, we couldn't get SeaWorld. <laughs> and we, again, partially because we're the biggest stars in the world at this point, but also, I guess for some convenience, we're, we're living at Marineland. We've all got, you know, kind of dress rooms that you can stay in, and they're very nice, too, and they're right by the whale tanks. So I realized that at night that I'm doing all these scenes with the whale, and I've kind of memorized what mo- moves the whale trainer does to get the whale to jump up in the air. So I go out there at night when I'm there, and I make the whale jump up and over, and over, but I don't have any fish to give this whale. I'm just doing it, and then he quits on me. And this is a very famous thing. You probably might remember this from the news. Um, the next day, they're doing the big whale show, and the whale trainer gets on to, to ride his back, and he goes straight to the bottom of the tank, gives him a little bite on the leg, and won't let him go up. This, this story would not be so funny if he killed him. He did not. But I, was, I, was, I got in so much trouble because I went out to do it the next night. And I was caught by security doing the whale tricks till the whale wouldn't work anymore. And apparently that's terrible for business. <laughs> you did some wonderful research on this one, Gilbert. I'd never heard that story either. Really? Oh, that's a great story. Well, that's great. Well, so we're going to wrap it up, Dan. What do you, do, what do you got coming up? Uh, you're always involved with projects. Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm very happy about this. I've got nothing coming up. I got my radio. Is that right, honey? I got anything coming up? Are you on no, a... I got nothing, man. I'm just happy doing my what? number one rated morning show, and I don't have to do anything else. So listen to this, you guys. I didn't have to do this. This was just because I love you guys, and nobody cracks me up like you, Gilbert. Oh, thank you, Danny. Yeah, we want to thank uh, Danny Partridge himself, Danny Bonaducci. This has been... Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, talking 
to the great Danny Bonaducci, who to this day wants David Cassidy's cock. <laughs> I know. It sounds weird when you say it. <laughs> Susan Day has banana tits. And you want David Cassidy's cock. I, I wouldn't mind David Cassidy's cock. Okay, there. You have it. <laughs> it was a great episode, Thank Danny. You, Thank you, Danny. buddy. <laughs> See you guys. Bye.